Sex Machine. Thank you. Yeah. You guys are getting it. One more week and you'll be right on point. Yeah. Yes. I like the dancing. That's what I was going to say before, before it went through. I like the dancing. Tonight we're going to continue talking all about sex and what it has to do with your life. Past few weeks, it has been interesting. It almost seems like the sex series, I don't know why, but it seems like it's been a long time since we started this. I don't know why. Not that it really has. It's been the same amount as normal. But I don't know. Maybe it's just there's a lot of excitement going on. Uh, I want to encourage you guys, if you have not got to listen to the mini-cast from last week, take the time and listen to them. Um, they're short and they're informational. Um, I didn't get to listen to them, but <laughs> I spoke them, so I heard them once. Did anyone listen to them, and were they decent? Good, good. Yes, eight people approve. Listen to them. They're, they, they're at least decent. They're funner than a funeral, okay? Um, in this series, we were really hoping, like one of my, my deepest wishes is that through this series, you actually learn something about sex that's going to benefit the rest of your life. I mean, obviously, we're here and we're in a church, and I'm talking to you about Jesus Christ as well, but in this series, the idea that throughout it, you will pick up even just small bits of knowledge. Like, you might not be like, wow, you blew my mind and taught me something really crazy. But something even small that's going to help you throughout the rest of your life, because sex really does have a big impact on our lives. Can you turn off the air conditioning? I'm cold. Anyways. We've been talking about how God is the designer of sex. He is the original creator of it, and he made all of us into the sex machines that we are. I want to remind you once again, I know it's repetitious, but our messages are PG-13 in rating and they're slightly explicit in content. So let us start once again tonight. Tonight's message is called Nuts and Bolts. You might have read that on our uh, handouts. Tonight is about the internal workings of sex. And I'm not talking about like the physical internal workings. But like the cards say, um, the, the description, with sex under the access panel. In other words, this sex machine here that we're going to take and kind of peel back the outer layer and look deep inside of us at what sex really is. So a lot more about our sexuality and about personally, what is sex to me? What are the deep secrets and what are the things down inside of me that have to do with sex? When I say sex, a lot of people immediately think of the act of sex. However, there is so much more to that as we've been talking about through the past few weeks. We talked about all the different things that come with sex are um, listed with it. Sex is an extremely significant factor in your life. That's actually probably an understatement. Sex will affect your life a great deal. Um, not just that person that you someday have sex with, but sex starts long before and continues long after that relationship begins. 
Um, it's worth so much more than that. Think of this for a second. People have traded education, jobs, possessions, success, and family because of sex. They've traded these things for sex. So to say that it just has an effect on our life would be a, a massive understatement. Having a good knowledge of sex, then, is obviously an important thing to do to make sure that your life is also beneficial, not just because of your sex life, but when you see that it can affect so many different things, you'd say, maybe it's a smart idea just to have a good grasp on sex to make my life actually function correctly. And that's exactly it. Sex is something that is mean, meant to be shared, but it starts with something very, very individual. It starts in all of us, um, personally. And more than anything, it starts with our most powerful sexual organ. Some of you guys are thinking dirty thoughts. It's not. It is not the penis or the vagina. It is the brain, our most powerful sexual organ. If there's anything that will affect our sex life, it will be our brain. People worry about their sexual organs. You should be worrying about your brain more. It will have more effect on your sex life, believe it or not. Um, this is where sexuality really begins. This is the, the core, okay? God designed sex, and he made us sex machines. We already established that. But our brain is where he wrote the initial programming, just like a computer um, and just like a machine, which are often controlled by computers. There's like this central, central knowledge, and it's where all the programming goes into. God put this programming e into each and every one of us. Um, I dare to say if you probably took a male and a female who had never heard anything of sex, never heard anything, and you put them together, after a while they'd figure it out. Pretty certain after a while they'd be like, hmm, they'd figure it out. They'd come to. But we aren't just left with ourselves to figure out sex. Instead, there are many things that try to teach us what sex is as we grow up. Tons of different things. Um, perhaps the most frightening and yet most influential is our parents. Yes. Your views on sex and your sexuality is probably most influenced by your parents. Some people are kind of frightened at that because they're thinking, you haven't seen my parents, you don't know them. It's frightening to think that my sexuality is based off of that. But it's really true. Um, we learn about who we are sexually, a male or a female, by how our parents interact with us. We learn about sex and sexual relationships between people by how our mother and father might have portrayed it. Through our family relationships, we get a picture of sex while we're very, very young, and we start to already learn about it. As we get older, a lot of times our parents encourage these thoughts before they're even, even viable in our own minds. How many times, how many times, I know me personally, just at like family reunions and stuff, is there like a five-year-old kid, and they're like, hey, got any boyfriends or girlfriends? Like, it's so simple, but like, they're already putting that into these kids when they're like, super tiny. They should be thinking about playing with like Tonka toys and like they're like, do you have any girlfriends yet? Like I was told that since I was like a little boy like all the time. And they start like putting that on us and it's already developing our sexuality even though it seems so innocent. Um, and then sooner or later sooner or later maybe that conversation happens. The sex conversation. Has anyone had the sex conversation. Did anyone's parents actually sit them down 
for a conversation. Raise them high. Actually sat you down and had the sex conversation. You went for smoothies. <laughs> That's beautiful. Smoothies and sex. Wow. Yeah, that conversation, that awkward, horrible, horrible conversation of let's sit down and let me tell you about the birds and the bees. Wow, that is an awkward situation, is it not? Yeah, Joe, you had that? That's <laughs> at Christmas. That's <laughs> Wow. You know, Santa Claus is a lot like sex. It's a mystery that just appears sometime in the middle of the night, and in the morning, you got presents. I don't know. What the heck? Who, com- who, who comes up with that? Conversation on sex at Christmas time. I've heard it all. Man, let me tell you, that situation can be really bad. I, I personally, I, w- I never did have the sex conversation. Shelby and I didn't. Our parents were really, our parents, we learned about sex our whole lives. Like, our parents weren't like, now we're going to sit down and talk about sex. Like, our parents were really, really open with it, and it wasn't discussed as it was something, like, really crazy or, like, sat down and we're going to have a conversation about it. But we learned about sex, like, from the time we were younger. Like, it was just a natural thing that we, we learned about. Like, we never actually had that conversation. Um, I don't know if that was good or bad. Um, not ridiculously messed up sexually, I don't think, so hopefully it turned out decent. Um, Even worse, though, than all these things with your parents and that horrible conversation, even worse is when parents don't talk about it at all. How many people have those parents who would never, ever say anything about sex? Anyone? Never, right? Never mention anything about sex? Man, this can be even worse. Even worse than those strange conversations. Listen to this. Um, It's from the Archbishop of Canterbury. Said in the early 1900s, this man spoke this. He said, I would rather have all the risks which come from a free discussion of sex than the greater risks we run by a conspiracy of silence. There was a man in the church in like, probably like 1910, he said this. That's wild. He's a smart man. He said, there's, there's problems when you just leave it as not having anything said. Like I said, the way that your parents might have said something to you, that could be really embarrassing. But often we see this problem here that kids are never talked about it. And what happens is, is then they're interested in it and they rebel against their parents and just delve into it. That happens all the time too. But actually, yes, the way that your parents uh, raised you can have a tremendous impact on who you are sexually. Um, like I said, people who talk about sex too much or there's too much sexual, um, like dis- not necessarily discussion, but too many sexualized things in their life, you can get this over-sexualization. Or even, like I said, the people who don't talk about it, it becomes such of like a, a, fa- a fascination that it can become a problem as well. On top of all of this, on top of all this programming that's going into your brain about sex, then you also now have our society, which screams at us what sex is as we're growing up. Um, since we're little tiny kids, we see TV and now we have internet where we are taught about sex on a consistent basis, often in a non-beneficial way. Um, sex is placed in our minds from a very young age and a lot of times in ways that aren't what God ever intended it to be. And a lot of times, I mean, kids are seeing stuff that's horrible when they're young kids. Like, I mean, not just like sexual things, but like they're getting 
shown like things like rape and molestation and stuff like that and to be like horrible things that are being placed in their minds. We're told about how we have to impress the opposite sex since we're like a tiny little kid. The fact that you have to find that special someone and you have to be boyfriend, girlfriend with them. And um, many of these shows and many of these things start to kind of cheapen and chip away at what sex is. All these things like parents and society have played a role in shaping that programming of what sex is in our mind, of the very innermost of what we feel that sex is. And they can form a tremendous amount of problems in our sexuality. Things like hypersexuality, really, really oversexualized, hyposexuality, a lack of sexuality, um, mistaken sexuality, and things like homosexuality. All of these things coming from um, all these different influences. Um, kind of as a sidebar, and not at all to be condemning, but I will just give you um, like a straight up thing here. Um, by what God's plan is, homosexuality does not fall inside of it. God's plan was always for one man and one woman in sex, and it just doesn't fall in line with what God's uh, plan is. Um, there's different places in the Bible that you can find, like Leviticus 18 and Romans 1, 26-27 are places that people use. I'm not even going to read those for you. Um, but God's parameters didn't involve this. And I do not claim, like many hurtful Christians do, that it's just a choice, because it's not just a choice. People don't just wake up and decide, hey, I'm going to be a homosexual today. Um, but I completely disagree with the fact that you're born with it. So the problem is, is when you look at homosexuality, there are always strong ties, in almost all cases, to situations with family and with society and upbringing that always relates back to it. You look through it, and there's always these problems. Um, it's not the fact, like I said, that you decide, but there's things that imply these things on us. Um, and like I said, I'm not trying to be condemning at all, but, at all, but I want to present this to you. Um, they found these really, really strong ties, especially to parents with homosexuality, and especially to the father. That's where we get our sexuality from, is how, what the father presents to us in our relationship. Um, just some examples are the son who might be shy or timid, and then having combined with um, the withdrawn or non-existent dad, or maybe that antagonist dad who always makes the son feel like he can't be someone. Oftentimes very common in this. The daughters who have maybe an over-exaggerated relationship with mother, and then the father is a very poor example, inattentive, unadoring, and unprotecting. And you see these common things over and over and over again in, in gay, gay men and, and lesbian women. These things come back over and over again. You, you start to talk to them, and you always find these problems that took and really messed up what their sexuality was at an early age. They didn't decide to be this way, but there were things that really kind of hurt them. Um, and now the problem is, too, is it's paired with our society. With our society saying, basically, guys, man, if you're not the jock who's a stud and you aren't thinking about doing girls every weekend, you might just be gay. Go ahead and take that for a try. And telling girls, you know, it's totally cool. Lesbianism is, is, is fun. It's awesome. You talk about, like, all the college students. I don't know if you ever heard of lugs, lesbians until graduation. Common thing in, in college. Girls just figure, we'll just hook up for now, and then when we get out, I'll go back to being a heterosexual. But in society now, it's being presented as something that's so forward. <clears throat> and not only that, but especially by our society, um, this extremely pro-gay pro uh, movement. And like I said, I'm not trying to be condemning, but these things have been put out there. Um, the Bible talks about this as it, it not being right, that it is a deviation from what God planned. 
for our sexuality. The reason why I bring it up to, uh, to say it to you, like I said, not to condemn, but to say that it's basically a situation like any of ours. It is a problem with our sexuality. I in no way um, believe that homosexuality is a right path for people. I'm sorry, but by what the Bible says, it's just, it's not right. Um, it wasn't what God planned for our sexuality. However, if you're sitting out there and you're saying, I'm not gay, and it's not my problem, um, you need to be re- re-educated as well. Because one of the biggest stereotypes of people who, um, who aren't homosexuals, and especially people who say that they have belief in, in God, is this extreme homophobia, which is ridiculous. Okay? There is no difference in their sexual sin than in mine, than in yours. The fact that they want to have sex with someone of the same... Of the, of the same sex before marriage and the fact that I want to have sex with someone of the opposite sex before marriage is the exact same sin. It's no different. So you need to remove that because a lot of times I think we get caught up in this and it's like it's something that's like, oh, it's, it's bad and like you can't even be part of that. That's just another part of, of confusion that's been bred in the people because of their, because of their upbringing. Um, and I mean, it's something that, that um, you know, I believe that I, I, I've been to places, I have talked to people and it's something that people can actually com- completely come out of, that it's, it's not something that carries through their life. But a lot of times they look at their past, people can basically turn that around in their lives. But back to the topic at hand, because I just wanted to cover part of that for you guys for knowledge. I will talk later, because um, I want to continue. Um, in our minds, we should be holding the picture of what God has for sex. That should be in our, in our centermost of what we believe in our sexual lives. We should be holding the togetherness, the oneness, the purity, the safeness that we have been talking about on what sex is. But instead, a lot of times, our minds can be viewed, um, can be skewed, excuse me, and can negatively affect our future sex life and our future lives in general. Um, The way that you view sex right now and the way that your parameters, I mean, your uh, your programming has been set in your mind can completely skew what's going to happen down the line. Man, it can jack stuff up with what's going to happen. Um, the wrong programming in a machine can cause catastrophic results. I work in a, uh, in a machine shop, right? They have these machines nowadays where you can take and it will do all the machine work that you do on an engine where, like, I'm used to setting up a bore to take and cut out a cylinder and all this other stuff. And technicians will run it by doing nothing but typing on a keyboard. They will never touch the whole entire block, everything that's being done by this machine. Instead, all they do is type in calculations, and it does it. But if you type in the wrong programming, you can destroy what you're doing. Without the right programming, you can get horrible results. There's a book I'm reading. Um, It's called Sacrifice. It was written all the way back in 1935 by a man named Reverend Howard W. Guinness. He says, talking about our minds and about how it affects us, he, he says this quote. Let me preface it with this. If you guys haven't heard some of the old school terminology, this was written in 1935. He's talking about like using the parable of like farming. And there's two words they always use, which is sowing, which would be like planting, and reaping, which would be like harvesting. Okay, so this is the terms that he uses. He says this: sow a thought, and reap an act. Sow an act, and reap a habit. Sow a habit, and reap a character. Sow a character, and reap a destiny. What he's saying is that it all begins in our minds, and as we continue in that, it turns into everything that we are and everything that our life becomes. That it all starts right inside of here. Many of us, 
because of how we've been raised, because of what society has told us, are sowing in our minds sexual infatuation, um, getting our own sexual gratification. This can be like the boy who basically realizes that his sexual thoughts can take him to a paradise of sex anytime he wants to. The girl who realizes that she can maybe use her sexuality as a tool to get men to do what she wants. But they're not beneficial at all. 1 Corinthians six twelve says, Everything is permissible to me, but not everything is beneficial. What he's saying is there's things that are just detrimental to your life. They might not even look like they're really bad, but man, they can have negative effects on your life. The problem is, is people lay this groundwork of poor sexuality right in here, and then everything else is built on top of it. And man, you are just setting up for a crash. It all starts in the mind on what sex is supposed to be. Like I said with this quote that, that Reverend Guinness said, what happens, too, is, is our thoughts sooner or later become our acts. That's what happens. Man, if you're thinking it now, unless something drastically changes, you're probably going to act on it sooner or later. And the common outlets, man, when you just, this, this mindset of sexual infatuation and, and things like this, you always fall into these same stereotypical ruts. Things like pornography and masturbation. Pornography is probably the number one thing that always happens here, in, especially in our society. It used to be, believe it or not, I know because our age and what we've been raised in, it used to be that pornography was really hard to get a hold of. It was difficult. Had to go to a specific place or a dirty store. Man, nowadays, if you have three minutes and a computer, you can have every bit of pornography you want at your fingertips. It's wild how easy it is for people, man, all the way down to little kids can get a hold of pornography and look at it for free, no problem, like nothing. It's crazy. And although the world will tell you that pornography is perfectly normal, it's fine to look at, there's no problems that come with it. It's just not how this sex machine was designed. God built us with the parameters already put inside us, and this stuff going into our mind is not beneficial whatsoever. Luke eleven thirty four says this, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light. But when your eyes are bad, your body is full of darkness. You see, what he's talking about is the fact that our eyes let into our, into our bodies, into our souls, basically, who we are going to be. And you can't just look at something and think that, well, that's just something I look at. But what he's saying is it goes inside of us. It goes through your eyes and becomes part of who you are. Pornography isn't just a man thing, believe it or not. There are girls who look at pornography, too. Girls, you can't hide underneath the radar here. Uh, it happens just as much, especially now with the whole Internet thing, because girls will stumble on pornography at an early age and then basically create an addiction out of it. So they have, girls can have just as many problems as guys can in this area. But although society will tell us that pornography has nothing wrong with it, there are things that come with pornography that are very detrimental. Number one, it cheapens sex. What's supposed to be special someday between two people, what's supposed to be sacred, now becomes something that's just flagrant and you can take a look at and it's nothing. It also gives people unreal expectations of sex. Girls, it's probably not going to be that good every time. Guys, she's probably not going to be into it every time, just like in pornography, that there's always that girl who's ready to have sex and so amazingly into it. Not only that, but it desensitizes you. It takes away um, what you have here. First Timothy 4.2 is kind of like a, a, a perfect parable of this. And... Paul is talking about evil teachers in this. 
but I think it applies so perfectly. He says, such teachings come through hypocritical liars who con- whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. You see, that's what pornography does to us, is it takes our consciences and it just burns into them, and it takes away all the sensitivity to the issue. issue. We sear our brain with these images until, sooner or later, sex loses some of its excitement. It loses some of its interest. I'm not joking, I'm not just making this up, but it really can um, lead to absolute problems. There's this site called triplexchurch.com, and it's a couple of pastors, and they started this because they found problems with basically pornography addictions, and they help guys out who have problems with this, help girls out, help people who are in the, soci- in the society of pornography. They have letter after letter of guys, as embarrassing as it sounds, who write in and say, my addiction to pornography destroyed my sex life. Literally, my wife can be naked in front of me, we're ready to have sex, and I can't even get an erection because my brain has been seared by the pornography that I've looked at for the last few years of my life. It's embarrassing, but real. It sears our brains and takes away the specialty that sex is supposed to have someday because it's been looked at and more than looked at over and over and over again until it just takes away all that sensitivity in our minds. It can rob some of the amazing things in your future sex life. It can take away the excitement. It can take away um, just some of the specialty that's supposed to be there. And often, a lot of times, what comes right behind on the heels of pornography, or maybe completely separate, is masturbation. And yes, I'm actually going to talk about masturbation, the M word, the word that no church in the world ever wants to talk about because it's so embarrassing. But we're college students, and I can talk about it. Believe it or not, once again, girls, you can't hide. It's not just a guy thing. Guys don't sit there and feel like it's all you. Girls masturbate as well. It is a problem between both sexes. And what it is, is the best way I can describe it is it's impatience. (laughs) It's impatience. Not wanting to wait for what God has for you in sex someday, but instead thinking, I can just take care of it right now. The problem is, though, is that it is a cheap substitute, which I'm sure all of you realize. But there's negatives that come with that, too because it does rob away as well from what sex is supposed to be. Um, the Bible, believe it or not, does not speak directly on masturbation, because churches will often take the stance of, um, you know, we're, we're anti-masturbation, but they don't know why. A lot of old school people used to use the story in Genesis 38 of a man named Onan. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this story or not, but the whole deal was is that Onan, um, his brother died and left a widow, Okay. Back in that day, as weird as it sounds, if your brother died, you're unmarried, and he leaves a widow, it is your responsibility to take his wife as your own because you have to provide a child as an heir for him. If he had kids, it's cool. But like in this situation, Onan's older brother, he didn't get to have a kid with, it, with this woman yet, and Onan was then rightfully supposed to marry this woman basically sleep with her, and then she was supposed to create an offspring who was to be called Onan's brother's offspring and then carry everything that came with that. The story goes that basically Onan was an evil man, and when he had sex with her, he refused to basically ejaculate into her. Instead, he would take, and it says, spill his semen on the ground, as graphic as that is, like I said, explicit. What happens is, is after that, God says that Onan was an evil man, and he strikes him dead falls dead. And preachers used this to speak on masturbation for years. 
frightening. Guys, if you masturbate, God's going to strike you dead instantly. But it's so not correct. They were using something out of context just to try to frighten people, basically. First of all, as you can tell, it's not even talking about masturbation at all. Um, it's talking about pulling out, and there's a whole bunch of different stuff you can go on with that. But here's the deal with masturbation, okay? Matthew 5.28 says this. Jesus is talking about sexual sin to people. And what he's doing is he's laying up the old school rules, and then he's putting onto it what he expects with it. And he says, you know, the old school rules said that it is wrong for you to basically commit adultery, to sleep with another woman. But Jesus says, but I tell you this, if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've already committed adultery inside of your heart. What Jesus is saying is that if you take and you have that image of the other person, I, he said it to a guy, but girls the same thing. If you take that image of the other person and you imagine having sex with them, he says it's the exact same thing because I'm all about your heart. I'm not about just your physical actions. Going and having sex with them and taking and thinking about it, he says it's the same thing. It's still both is wrong. So what this comes down to is this. Is masturbation wrong? Well, I don't really know because I can't stand on that whether or not because the Bible doesn't support it. Are the thoughts that come with masturbation wrong? Yes. God doesn't support that kind of stuff because he says, man, your mind isn't supposed to be full of all that lust. You're supposed to basically wait and you're supposed to share sex with that person someday. You're not supposed to be thinking about whoever you want to have sex with and then taking care of it yourself. That's not right. And that goes right back to pornography as well. That's God's view on pornography if you want to talk about why it's not, it's not correct. You're looking at stuff that you're not supposed to and God says that that's not right for you. It's like committing adultery. It's the same thing. See, not only that, but we already talked about the fact that sex carries other things with it, doesn't it? We talked about a spiritual connect, about a mental connect that comes with sex, not just the physical aspect. Masturbation takes care of the physical aspect, but what it does is it leaves people high and dry on the mental and spiritual connect. And a lot of times it creates even more problems. Shame, basically infuriation, because it doesn't take care of what we actually want from sex. It just takes care of the physical part of it. Um, even worse, um, so I've heard, I might be incorrect, but especially women, they always talk about oxytocin, and they talk about how when girls have orgasms that their body releases oxytocin, which is a bonding uh, chemical in their bodies. There's no one to bond with. If you're masturbating, obviously, there's problems that come with that. It's harmful. And what it can do also is it can destroy our realistic expectations of what sex is going to be. If you think you can have sex anytime. Well, there's going to be some repercussions to that because you're used to just having sex whenever you feel like it. Guys especially. I read a study once. I can't remember where it was at. Girls listed gardening above sex in importance. Gardening. Guys, seriously, you're going to have to deal with that because there's going to be a lot of times you're probably going to want sex and your girl is totally not going to be into it. She's going to be like, sorry, just not feeling you on that one. Like, I'm going to go garden instead. So really, you know, maybe get a hold of that a little bit that, you know, it's not just going to be about any time you want to to fulfill your sexual desires, that it is this, it's a paired thing. Like I said, it is a oneness between two people. So it's going to be about both people. The sexual acts here that we're talking about fall outside of what God's plans are for your life. And just like I said back to Guinness's statement once again in the past that I read, um, our acts can become habits in our life. They can turn into things that just repeat over and over and over again. We can get stuck on it, and we can't get away from it. Man, this is exactly what I was talking about with, like, pornography, these, why Triple X Church started. Talking about guys who, like, literally every single day, like, can't get off the computer. 
stuck on this. People talking to him about, literally, how about this question? Guys calling in or writing in saying, question for you. How many times a day is it okay to masturbate? You tell me there's not a habitual problem there that guys are writing in this stuff, wondering, am I normal or am I, am I off the charts here? Um, it turns into this habit. Um, the girl that I mentioned earlier, realizing that she can use her sex as basically like a tool it turns into basically this continual habitual thing until basically what she does is she becomes that girl that no one likes. You know the one? The one who can't turn off her sexuality around guys and all she does is she basically plays that on guys. Your habits actually start playing into your real life. And a lot of times as they start to become habits even in your mind and in your personal life, they're going to develop into your sexual life, your actual sex life with other people. Um, it'll play out because basically you can't carry something around with that, like around with you like that long, long enough. After a while, it's going to start playing out in your life. And just like that quote said again, then you become the character of your habit. All of that lust and all of that forward desire and that insatiable urges becomes who you are. That's frightening, isn't it? To think that what started in your mind can become who you are. People begin to live the life that goes along with their sexual habits that started in their mind. The sexual problems that started way back here, they start to live that out in their own life because it becomes their character. Women start to give sex to basically get love. How many times have we heard this? And man, that just destroys, absolutely destroys what sex is going to be. Like I said before, you talk about if, if a woman enters marriage and sex is something as a gift, how much more is she going to enjoy sex than if she gives it as basically a way to get love and then after it, that's how it's always viewed. Sex is just a way to be able to accomplish this, to get love. Both men and women, a lot of times, get into this over-sexualized habit, and they start having way too many partners, Like even like we talked about last week. Have you guys ever taken a piece of scotch tape, and you go to tape it down, but then you pull it back off because you didn't have the right place, and then you go to put it back down again, and it wasn't the right place, and you tear it off again, and you put it back down? And after you do that a few times, over and over and over again, what starts to happen? It loses its stickiness, doesn't it? It starts to lose its original adherence, and it starts to basically pick up all this gunk on the back of it that doesn't work anymore. That's what happens is people start treating their bodies just like a piece of scotch tape. They'll just basically stick to someone and peel apart and stick to someone and peel apart. And what happens is after a while, they lose like that connection that's supposed to be in sex someday, where they're really supposed to stick. And then what happens is they can't, and they fall back apart. When you become this character, you reap the destiny that comes with it. And that's the frightening part that you guys have to consider. People have established this pattern and become this character of their, their, uh, their sexual lust. And man, it just absolutely plays out. Unsatisfied sex lives, demolished marriages, torn apart families, all these things that happen. Um, divorce. I just read a statistic on divorce said that of people 50 and older who they polled about divorce, they took the group of people who said that it was because of infidelity, okay? <laughs> Listen to this one. This one's kind of funny, actually. And they polled them, and 93% of the women said it was because their husband was uh, sleeping around, and 78% of the men said it was because their wife was sleeping around. Someone's lying, but you get the point. There's so much divorce caused by this infidelity because people basically become, like I said, that worn-out piece of scotch tape, and then when they get in that sexual relationship, they just can't stick. They can't stick with it. 
like I said, broken families. Man, and then the really sad part of this is a lot of times this is where it goes into the extremes of people who turn into rapists and child molesters. It all starts back in their mind. I know it sounds crazy to say this, and it sounds like I'm going way out on a limb, but it's really true. They take people who are convicted of child molestation and rape, and a lot of times you look back, and they're the same people who are infatuated with pornography, infatuated with masturbation, and it goes all the way back to basically a lot of times sexual abuse in their own childhood that basically destroyed their sexuality, their programming, and it played all the way out through their lives until they came to this extreme. It all starts back here. All this, like I said, snowballs, and it all starts with just our thoughts. I want to tell you a quick story. It's the story of David. He's a guy in the Bible. He was a, um, a king. And uh, the story goes that, I mean, David was a, a pretty good man. He was picked out to be the king. God picked this man as being like his own, right? Problem is, though, is, is David had a lust problem. He had a lust problem up inside of his head. And um, I want to read you um, just the beginning of 2 Samuel 11 that talks about the story of David. It says, When that time of year came around again, the anniversary of the Ammonite aggression, David dispatched Joab and his fighting men of Israel in full force to destroy the Ammonites for good. Basically, he started a war. They laid siege to Rabbah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. Let his people all go out and fight, and he chilled back at home, eating grapes and hanging out and getting fat. One late afternoon, David got up from taking his nap. He's a fat, lazy guy, isn't he? He's taking a nap in the middle of the day. And was strolling on the roof of his palace. From his vantage point on the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was stunningly beautiful. David sent to ask about her and was told, Isn't that Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent his agents to get her. After she arrived, he went to bed with her. This occurred during the time of purification following her period. Then she returned home. But before long, she realized that she was pregnant. So what happens is, is David has this lust problem. He goes up on the roof, and he sees this girl, and he says, Wow, man, she's fine. I want to have her. Come and bring her to me. He's a king, so he can do whatever he wants. Brings her there, sleeps with her. She goes home, and she's pregnant. Her husband, Uriah, is off fighting in this war. He's one of David's men in the army. And see, he's already starting to play out. Like I said, it's starting to snowball, right? And here's what happens is because... Like I said, all this stuff can snowball. It started with a thought, turned into an act. And man, it just takes off. He finds out that she's pregnant. So how is he going to cover this up? He says, I'm smart. I'll bring Uriah home. I'll tell him he can go home. He'll sleep with his wife. When the baby comes, he'll figure it was his. He brings Uriah back. He says, you know what? Go home and rest. And Uriah doesn't go home. He stays outside of the temple, basically the, the king's palace. And he sleeps on the ground with his fellow men. David says, why didn't you go home? Why didn't you live with your wife? He says, how could I go home, eat, drink, be married, basically have sex with my wife when my friends are out there fighting and dying, sleeping on the dirt? So David says, well, I have, this is easy, right? He gets Uriah just crap-faced drunk. He decides, I'm just going to just get this guy liquored up. He's going to stumble home, have sex with his wife, and I'll be taken care of. Uriah gets just completely drunk, plastered out of his mind, walks outside of the front of the temple, falls down, and goes to sleep with his friends again outside of the temple. Doesn't play out. So David thinks, you know what? I know how I'll do this. And he sends him back off to war, and he sends to Joab, the commander. He says, I want you to basically to go into a place that's really dangerous and put Uriah on the front line so he dies. So Joab does 
the orders that David sends. He puts Uriah right on the front of the fighting lines and basically presses into a place that was just stupid to go into. And Uriah gets killed in battle. And he sends back to David. He says, go ahead and take this message that a lot of men lost their lives. Other men than Uriah lost their lives, but Uriah is dead. They come back and he explains that to David. And David says, well, you know, with all, with all battles, there's losses. He's a wicked man. It already snowballed and it turned into something so evil. Something simple like lust turned into him becoming a murderer. And this played out not only through him, but then through his further generations. God punished this man because he absolutely, he turned away from what God's plan was for his life. David got back on track. Took a guy named Nathaniel coming and basically punched him in the face with it. But David finally actually did get back on track and he said, God, you know, I'm sorry. And God forgave him. But you saw how all that just snowballed so fast, didn't it? Just started with him taking a stroll, seeing a pretty girl, and the thoughts started coming, and then the axe, and went all the way through into being something so crazy. Like I said, to go all the way back to the beginning of this message, how we treat sex in our minds is going to play through all of this. His quote, Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. The designer, of God, the designer of sex, God, he actually understood this. That's why he said all the way back um, in Philippians 4, 8 through 9, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right. Think about things that are pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. God didn't say these things because it made him happy, but he said them because he he's basically saying, if you keep your mind on what's right, man, life's going to be great. But if you let your mind stumble into the darkest of valleys, Man, it's going to go downhill from there. Like I started saying two weeks ago, I'm not saying this stuff because sex is bad. Man, sex is great. God designed sex, and he designed it as a gift for you guys. Just he put, he put some parameters on it. We're supposed to have sex and lots of sex, but when we're together with that one person who's supposed to be in our life, when we're married to that one special someone, that's who we're supposed to have sex with, and God's going to bless that. He didn't take anything away from it. Man, when you get married, God is all for you guys. Get freaky, buck naked, and go ahead and have as much sex as you want to. Totally cool. No boundaries on that. But he put boundaries on it before that. Although we need to put boundaries on our sexuality, like our sex lives, it all starts back here. And this is where we need to start putting boundaries on. This is where it all begins. Um, If you get a hold of it now, man, you can change it. All that stuff that you just might have just heard about, you think... Man, all that can snowball and turn into something so bad. But you can take care of it, especially if you think about it now and think, you know, I can take control of my mind, and I can change it, and I don't have to become that person. What might you need to change in your own sexuality, in your own mind, to protect your future, to protect your own sex life in the future? God offers new starts in all of this. In all the problems that we have, God always offers redemption, and he'll clear your plate, and he'll start you over again. That's what we're going to talk about, especially next week. So I want to encourage you guys to come back and listen about that, about how God can change who we are as a sex machine and start over. But it all starts here, so think about it tonight. I want to pray with you guys. Lord, I thank you uh, just for tonight. I thank you, Jesus, for your design of sex, Lord God, and designing us as sex machines. And I thank you for the original programming that you put in our mind. Lord, I pray to you that you would just... um, Bring it to us that we need to protect ourselves from all these things that are going to try to derive and just derail our programming and just cause all these problems 
um, that I know that you set up, you tell us to, to fix our minds on good things, not because it's, it's for your own pleasure, but because you're trying to protect us because you know that we can just destroy our lives by where we let our minds go. I pray to you, God, for each and every one of us to have healthy sex lives someday, um, just crazy, um, fun sex lives, Lord God, but inside the parameters that you set up, Jesus Christ. I thank you for tonight, Lord, and it's in your name that I pray, Jesus. Amen. Sex machine.